Okay, if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 John in the back of your Bible. 1 John chapter 2. I'll be reading chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Father, we need the power of Your grace. First, as a teacher, to unfold what is here in Your holy, infallible, inerrant Word through Your Apostle John. We need minds to be awake and to hear. We need hearts to love the truth of the power of conversion. Of the power of the gospel to save to the uttermost through your Son, Jesus. Amen. This text this morning is about the biblical doctrine of assurance of salvation. Just notice in this passage the word know or to know is used four crucial times. In verse 3, we know we are Christians. Or, in other words, we know that we have come to know Him. In verse 4, if you say, I know Him, but you have no fruit, you're a liar. Verse 5, by this we know that we are in Christ. Th this Biblical doctrine of a Christian having assurance of the fact that they are saved in this text is not about the problem of whether I, I really believe the historical proclamation that Jesus from Nazareth was the promised Messiah and died in place of my sins and was res resurrected from the dead historically, really. That's not the issue of assurance here in this text. But instead, it's about whether I personally am saved by those facts. It boils down to, do I have saving faith? And what makes it difficult in the history of the church and today is that there are people who think they have saving faith. They have assurance. They feel confident. And they don't. For instance, Jesus proclaimed in Matthew chapter 7, 
Not everyone who says to me, Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Jesus, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That creates that experience of many believers at one time or another of that agonizing struggle for the assurance of their salvation. Is my faith real? And what muddies it is some well-intentioned people try to lessen that problem by boiling this miraculous thing called conversion to Jesus Christ into some mechanical step you can do. Get baptized. Become a member of a church. Or say this prayer after me. Believe it in your heart. It's done. Forever. Don't let anyone take that away from you. You asked Jesus into your heart back in 1986 on the 4th of December. You're saved. No matter what. This text deals with this problem. Of fighting for our own biblical assurance that I'm really Saved that I know Him. Now, why? Well, there's a context that John is writing in. So let's remember and get this larger context of, and from which our text is coming. Just picture yourself that you've come to Jesus, and and for five years you're existing and this local Christian community of worship and Bible study and preaching and ministry to others and to each other. You're living out your faith in this community. And all these brothers and sisters have become close to you. They're your friends. And then a crisis hits. False teaching starts to come into the church and it starts to affect some. And then eventually there is an exodus of many of your friends from that Christian community. Believing some things that John says, if you continue to believe that, it proves you're not of the Spirit. And they've left. And they're living according to the flesh. They don't obey God's commandments. They couldn't care less. And so, here they are. And you start to wonder, okay, but wait a minute. John 3.16 says, and John gave that to us, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son 
so that whoever believes, believes in Him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, I know these people. They believed in Jesus. I worshipped with them. I watched their excitement. John, what are you saying? Was that untrue? And John, you've told us many times when you've preached to us in our living rooms about Jesus' words that later he would record in John 10 that every sheep that comes to him is given to him by the Father and he will lose none of them. So John, what are we to make of these people who in their lifestyle and in their thinking have abandoned the faith. That's context. That's what's happened. A group of these in this church, most likely in the Ephesus area, have left the community. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. John says, They went out from us But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out so that it might become plain or clear that they all are not of us. John is saying there to the church, everything I told you, that Jesus will never lose one of His sheep, that when you truly get caught by Him, and He brings you into Himself, and thus puts you into the community of the of us, He will never lose you. You are eternally secure. John doesn't deny that at all. And therefore, he says, this group was never actually part of the sheep. They were never really of us. Because if they had been of us, they would not have abandoned the body of Christ and Christ. See, it's precisely because the Apostle John believes in eternal security that he must conclude that when a person forsakes the faith, then it's evidence that he or she was never truly born again or a part of Jesus' flock, even though they were part of the local church. See, John did not say, once they actually were saved, they belonged to Jesus and they belonged to us, and then, well, they kind of like strayed and finally gone, and now they don't belong to us and they are no longer saved like they were. He doesn't say that. He can't say that. He won't say that because he understands the Gospel. <laughs> he believes that once you are truly of the body of Christ, you always will be. Once a sheep, always a sheep. Okay, that's what he's teaching. These people, like us, have questions. So, okay, John, you're saying that hand-raising, rejoicing, singing, praising of Jesus 
Bible reading people, even pastors or leaders, can abandon the faith and be lost? Well, John, well, then how are we to know whether I'm real? That makes me feel insecure. Especially because every one of us who are real are sinners still. Okay, that's a big part of the context of what's happening. Now, that's connected also to this one other thing. The issue of the false teachers and what they were saying. Now, you can hear what they're saying. You ever listen to a phone conversation? Just one side of it. You, can, you only got this person in front of you talking. You can't hear the other person. But if you listen long enough, you can get a good idea what the other person is saying. We can hear what the false teachers are saying by listening to what John is saying to the church. Just for instance, starting with chapter 1, he says, If we say we have fellowship with Him, God, while we walk in the darkness, there are people saying this, he says, we lie and don't practice the truth. Or if we say we have no sin... There are some who are saying this. Well, I mean, fornication and adultery and hating my brothers and sisters and all that. That's not really sin because that's only done in the flesh. But my spirit is saved and we're sinless there. Some are saying that. If, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, John says. He who says, I know him but disobeys His commandments. That's His life. That person is a liar. He who says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way as He walked. Don't listen to those false voices. He who says He is in the light and hates His brother is in the darkness still. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. So see, these false teachers that have infiltrated, they're saying, we have fellowship with God. We walk in the light. We're super spiritual. We abide in Christ. And they also teach. Well, what you actually do in this world through this physical body, sexually, fornication, backbiting, bitterness towards other Christians is really not relevant to whether you are righteous with God or in right standing with God. That's essentially what they're teaching. And so the second reason John is dealing with the doctrine of the assurance of salvation is to correct that false teaching that true Christians saved by faith can continue to walk in unrepentant darkness. That they can continue, they're just carnal Christians who love Jesus and continue in the direction of constant unrepentant disobedience to God's commands. Proclaiming all along, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in Jesus. That's the context. So let's look at the text first. Notice 
Here John will start in verse 3 with a conclusion. And then in the middle, he gives the foundation. That is, the Christian doctrine that undergirds his conclusion. And then he restates in different words the conclusion again. So, So first look at the middle part of it. The foundational truth that he lays says there is a necessary connection between truly knowing Christ and obeying His commands. Verse 4, Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is being perfected. Okay, that's the foundation. And therefore, John says, it follows logically that you can have assurance of your salvation if your knowing of Christ, your intimacy and that type of experiential knowledge with Jesus is producing obedience to Christ in your life. That's verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him. How? If we keep His commandments. Or again in verse 6. By this we know that we are in Him. How? Whoever says he abides or lives in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked or lived. And so for John here in this text, the argument of making those statements is built upon the simple reality. Knowing Jesus gives rise to obedience. And from this comes the doctrine of assurance that we're His. You can know that you know Jesus if you are obeying Him. Or as we've seen already in chapter 1, living this way, walking in the light. Okay. And so therefore... This word gnosko in the Greek, this this word to know in this text, getting it, what does John mean by that becomes really crucial. You can know that you know Him. What do you mean know Him? Well, let's just start with the facts of the text. The knowledge here of knowing Christ that he is talking about in the text, according to John, will most certainly produce obedience. Most certainly that knowledge will produce a changed life. Because John, in the text, easily calls a person who claims to know Jesus but does not have obedience a liar. How can he do that? If it's possible... To know Jesus and to live a lifestyle of constant and repentant disobedience. 
If that were possible, John could never call that person a liar. Well, maybe he really does know Christ, but is just living a carnal life. But John says there are people who say, and I think intellectually believe, I know Christ. And he says they are deceived. Or he's stronger. They're lying. And because of this reality of, of the gospel connected to the real life and what happens in the life, this is the tragedy of the watered-down gospel of present-day American evangelicalism where people are told often, you heard enough, Jesus died for you, you don't want to go to hell, right? Well, who wants to go to hell? You want to go to heaven when you die, right? Yeah, I would love to have that assurance problem. Well, then just believe this in your heart and say this after me. Amen. Did you believe it? Yes. You're in. That's a lie. It's not necessarily true at all. It is amazing that some of us, we think that saved us. No. Jesus saved us. And we think that that caused it and it didn't. And thank God you're in Christ if that was kind of an experience of yours that someone did. But the problem is there are millions of people who were told that and they're not born again. They don't know Christ, but they have been given through a watered-down gospel a false assurance. And this is why it's so tragic. It's like getting an inoculation from a disease. You get a little bit of it, and it won't kill you. Your body learns to know how to resist that virus so that the real thing never gets you. And many have been inoculated. They still go to church, and they are inoculated to the truth and the beauty of Christ. See, the knowledge he is talking about is not merely an intellectual agreement with some truth facts of the gospel. It's not that kind of knowing. It's not even in the knowing that Ju Judas lived with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He didn't save him. Throughout church history, many have proclaimed to know him and have proved by their life that they did not. So this knowledge, it's something much deeper than only intellectual. It is, at its core, an experience, a knowing, an intimacy. Just for a moment, if you turn to Matthew 11, Jesus gets at this kind of knowing. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows, there it is, see it? No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So Jesus just said, there is a special knowledge of God that no one can have unless it is given to Him by the Son. 
Now, in this letter of 1 John, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, We are, we believers who are in Christ, we are of God, or from God. Whoever, here's his word again, whoever knows God listens to us apostles. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now now notice John just said that the opposite of knowing God is not being from God. That's, or the way John says it in this letter is not actually being born of God. His way of saying born again. Knowing God for John means belonging to Him, being born of Him. Or in our text in chapter 2. By this we know we are in Him. See, it's not the mere knowledge of reciting a creed. It's like a newly married couple knows that there's a sense of knowledge they could never get over to an eight-year-old about what being in love is. I mean, the eight-year-old can talk about it. It means kissing. And, but there's an experience of being in love that, that, that eludes this eight-year-old child because they have not tasted of it. The knowing that John is talking about is a knowing that comes from tasting the goodness of God in Jesus. See, here in verse 4 of our text, that's why he says the disobedient person, this direction in life living, unrepentantly, this disobedient person not only does not know God, but John says the truth is not in him. Why? Because to know God means there is a change within the depths. And and that's why John easily says, this knowledge of, I know Jesus, is not saving knowledge that that person has. That's why he calls him a liar. Because the truth has never penetrated the core, the spirit, the heart, the affections of that person. It's never truly sunk in. You see, this person could read commentaries. He could hear preaching that cantaloupe is sweet. And he can go in Sunday school and teach it to others that cantaloupe is sweet and hear a scientific proof for that. But he has never tasted cantaloupe. There's a huge difference in one kind of knowledge than the knowledge it is sweet. I really like cantaloupe. So the knowledge that John is talking about is the knowledge 
that comes from being personally known by God through the Gospel. So, so much so that God implants the truth inside the person so that they cannot help but taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what John means by knowing God. Now, now notice how John connects that knowing God to obedience. By this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. I think if the Apostle John were to come into the American Evangelical Church today, he would stand up and he would say, don't tell me that you are in Christ because you said a prayer 23 years ago unless your relationship to sin has been changed. Now, we have seen throughout chapter 1 that John is not teaching, nor does he believe that there is any possibility of Christian sinlessness in this life. If you even say you're without sin, you're a liar. You're even calling God a liar on that one. We have seen that. But John is saying when people are supernaturally grabbed hold of by God through new birth, something has rocked their world in relationship to God and in relationship to their remaining sin. There's a sense even in the desire of sin in doing it because He dwells within you. There is this hatred of it that continually causes, as he's already said in the letter, confession of faith. Clinging to Jesus, your propitiation. A Christian hates their sin. If a person could know God and still live in disobedience, then John could never say in verse 4, he's a liar. Because he wouldn't. How would you know, John? Lots of Christians just live in unrepentant lives. They used to go to church with us. Now they kind of filter around churches here and there. And they get a new boyfriend. Well, they'll sleep with him for a while. And all of their life shows no affection for Christ. They never eat cantaloupe of Jesus. But the Christians... John would say we're nuts. And not only that, we're vicious for letting them think we think they are. See, John understands his very intimate, close friend, the one whom he rested his head on his chest at the Last Supper. He knows him. And the Apostle John, I, I would dare say more than us, he understands the meaning of the Gospel that when a person does come to saving faith, 
in God and in the cross. That faith at its core is a trust in God's omnipotence and wise, caring love for us. And therefore, John thinks that when that loving, wise Father commands something and a person says in their life ongoingly without repentance, No! No! John thinks that means that person doesn't believe that God really loves him or her. And therefore, he says, they don't know him. See, John's point is that if we believed that God in Christ really loves us, then we would believe that all of His commandments were really for our good. And we would trust Him in that. That He commands us because He wants the very best for us. And John thinks if you really believe that, then you would be pursuing what you believe to be the best for you. And so when a person religious or not religious, decides, no, I'm going to continue in the direction away from obeying God's commands, then that person is saying by their walk, remember how John put it in chapter 1? By their walking in the darkness. They are saying, a loving God would never command me to do that. Or never command me to not do that which I find so pleasurable right now. A loving God wouldn't do that. And that's the heart saying, I know better than God. I trust myself, not Him. Our disobedience, it shows that we don't trust in the love that God has for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that is the way we go on living without turning back in the other direction and clinging to Christ, then it's showing we don't know Him. Just flip over for a moment to chapter 4. Listen one short sentence on how John puts this. In verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, And so we who are believers, if we've come to know Him, listen to this, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. See that? We've come to know and believe. There's two verbs both headed at the same object. We know the love God has for us. We believe the love God has for us. To believe His love is to trust His love even as and especially as it expresses itself in His commandments. My son, Caleb, stop. Don't go into the street. Why do I say that? Because I know better. And I love Him. 
John is saying, if you have truly been born again, then you truly know the love of God. And at the core of faith is trusting and believing. You believe His love for you when He says to you, go this way. Don't go that way. Turn! Turn around, turn around, turn around, turn around. You trust, you believe Him. You don't do this perfectly. You don't do this sinlessly. But you do this because you are walking in the light as it's shining upon your sinful heart. That's, for John, his understanding of what the miracle of new birth is. That's what he says in chapter 5 of this letter when he talks about being born of God. And notice what he says in verse 3 of chapter 5. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And then he makes a statement that is utterly untrue to people who have not been born again. And His commandments are not burdensome. In the state in which I was born into this world, His commandments were burdensome and damning. When a person comes to know Him, there's something about what God is working in this life till death and waiting for the resurrection. There's something about it. He loves me. It is amazing that He would command me. How blessed am I? And so He says in chapter 2 in our text, just says it in different ways. By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments, to know Jesus savingly is to trust His direction for your life expressed in commandments. If you're living in constant disobedience and the clear directions of the Scripture and you don't care about that, it's not bothering you, it doesn't make you weep and cry and plead, well then it's a sign that you really don't love Him or know Him. And so John draws the logical conclusion in verse 4. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep, walking this way, keeping His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. And then He makes it clear in verse 5. But, whoever keeps His Word, Scripture, in him or her, truly, the love of God is being perfected. So now he says, oh, but for us who are hearing and reading and absorbing and living by the Word of God, the Holy Scripture, it's evidence that the love of God is working or being perfected. I think this is John's way of saying that's the life of sanctification or holiness. Process is going 
on. It's evidence that the love of God. What does that mean? Now, this is going to be fun because I know there's like four or five in high school will be taking New Testament Greek in the fall and one in college that I know about. So when you get to the genitive case nouns, you will learn that these, when you take a noun in the genitive in Greek, you would translate into English with the word of, like is right here, the love of God. And you ask, what does that mean? Well, when you come to that phrase, you're going to ask, is that a subjective genitive or an objective genitive? If it were a subjective genitive, which it could be, then John means God's love for us. If he means an objective genitive, then he means our love for God. And I'm not going to take the time, but I can show you John uses it both ways. The whole New Testament uses it both ways. Both are true. And I don't know if it makes that much difference at this point. That God's loving me in Jesus produces something. It's being perfected. It's, it's, it's causing my heart to obey at its core, loving other people. Or, my loving for God is being completed, perfected by it, not stopping there, but a spring flowing down the mountain of loving other people. For John, that is the Christian life. And that's the text. So here's the rub. If the Apostle John were to come now to our time of American evangelicalism, I think he would be shocked at how so many minimize the miraculous, transforming power of the Gospel by denying that there is any necessary changes in the life that give evidence to the reality of saving faith in the heart. Those who have come to know God, as John puts it, or who keep His Word, as John puts it, or in whom the love of God is being perfected, those are the persons who are being saved. Let me just say it this way. Those are the persons that John 3.16 is talking about. Wow, that is a hot area. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are the ones He means who believe in Him. They are the ones who are being Saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. They are being saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. Because God, He reached down miraculously and He put them in His Son in some mysterious way by God the Holy Spirit. And it has become evident because they're going around the earth even today. I believe. I love Jesus. Isn't the Gospel beautiful? He's myself. Can I tell you about Him? That's the evidence 
that that's happened. And they look to Him as wise, omnipotent, holy, wonderful God. They yearn to one day be resurrected and done with sin altogether. So let me say the same thing again this way. We're saved by faith. That, that, that is the means when the gospel is preached, a person is saved. But what is that faith? Faith at its core is the eye-opening experience to the beauty, the deliciousness of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And from that, it continues to place its rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It places its rest in the gospel of justification by faith alone that Jesus provided by a substitutionary propitiation. And it does that daily. So let me, let me just say that all again very slowly. Faith at its core isn't being pushed into a confession of Jesus or something. It is the result of a miraculous change of heart by God as He sent others or the Bible in your hotel room, enough of the truth of the Gospel, and He took that you saw in your, through your eyes and your mind, and He jammed it down into your heart, turned the spotlight on, and you saw it for the beauty and the salvation that it is. He's gorgeous to you. Okay, let me just so um, Paul said essentially that. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is how he starts it, right? There are those who hear the gospel and they have nothing transpiring inside of them. And they die. And they are awaiting judgment. And Paul heavily says it this way that the reason that happens is because Satan blinds their eyes. He blinds their minds. He's blinding the minds of the unbelievers. What is he blinding them from? This is what, this is what Paul says he's blinding them from. Quote, he blinds their minds from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? See, for faith to be real, there must be that supernatural light that God shines into the heart and shows us how wonderful this is. And you change. And that's why Paul goes on to say two verses later in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, but, but believer, but believer, we're not those who are perishing. We are those we're being saved. Why? Quote, because God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Most of us, that happened and we don't even know what happened. We found out later, oh, I, I'm a Christian? Okay. That's how it was for me. It took me months to even under, hear the word born again. Or I, What? But He saved a wretch like me. Because I was reading the Bible for some mysterious reason as a 19-year-old. And we look and say, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Okay. The question is, is that you? Now, if that's you, then the second part is you are therefore on a pathway. You're on a pathway of continually resting in the gospel that saves you. Looking away from yourself to the gospel of Jesus. So the Christian life, it is God shining this light. Your, your, your heart moved. It's core. It starts here before anything outwardly in obedience. And it's because of the light of the Spirit who now indwells you. And then it is this ongoing, valid resting in Jesus. Now I say valid Resting, because as we have seen in our text, there is an invalid resting. Whoever says, I know Him, I'm resting in Him, I'm secure, I'm good, but does not keep His commandments as a liar and the truth is not in Him. These are the people who think that they are saved and they're not. Maybe they're trusting in their first Holy Communion, and then their confirmation of that, and go to Mass, kind of do okay, and pulling all the religious levers. It's easy to say this about Rome, isn't it? But we evangelicals have the same kinds of systems, but I said the prayer, I did this, I did that. Okay, I'm secure, doing okay. No, these kinds of people have a faith. It's not a saving faith, though. It, it, it's a faith that believes only on the basis, really, of wanting to avoid punishment in the afterlife. Just in case, that, that I mean, that's really real. But it's not because they see Christ Jesus as more beautiful and more desirable than all else. And that's why that false faith doesn't produce the fruits of the Spirit of love your neighbor as yourself. Which sums up the whole law of God's commandments. It doesn't obey because they don't see Him. Instead, it's the faith of James 2.17 so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. As James said, can that faith save you? Of course not. It's not the genuine thing. And so as we close then, practically, what this means for the Christian life that the Christian life, among other things, but at its core, it is an ongoing walk and battle 
for the assurance of our salvation. And so I just want to recommend at least three things that should be daily in our lives to, just to pursue as you wake up. And the first is this. First and foremost, every day continue to look to and marvel at the cross of Jesus. Meditating on it, knowing it, understanding what the gospel is. As we saw the last time, Jesus, He is the propitiation for our sins, not we ourselves. You don't look to do better to make yourself right with God. He's the propitiation. Understand Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. Understand Galatians 2 and 3. Understand at the core of the Gospel is that He justifies you, makes you right forever before Him through His Son. Look! This is key. As you're fighting, because we fight why? Because we find, why am I still so undone? Why am I still fighting that sin? Because God has purposes that you are for one reason. But as you do every day, look not inward first. Look away from yourself. Look to the cross. We just read it in 2 Corinthians. Why? Because it is there that God shines the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look there, not yourself, and be constantly changed from one degree of glory to the other. Do it for the sustaining and growing of your assurance of salvation. Now, secondly, just say this. As we do that, because the where do you look? You look at the Word of God where God shines His light. Look away from you to Scripture. And as you do, and I say this without inhibition, pray for yourself. Pray, for instance... Ephesians 1, 17-19 for you constantly in your devotions. That the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, that you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. And then, daily as you pursue Him this way, take that trust in your heart towards the promises of God and the commandments of God. Take your joy in this glorious Gospel daily and overflow it in obedience and repentance and confession of sin and loving others. Because as the love of God is being perfected or worked out in you, as John puts it, His promises to you 
are glorious and His commandments then are not burdensome. And as John says, we know that we know Him because we keep His commandments. And this is the way you are to daily maintain, Christian, your assurance and grow it of your salvation. Let's pray. So Father, I pray now for those who may not yet see the beauty and the glory of Christ that You would open their eyes. Open their eyes to see. Encounter them. Save them from impending wrath forever. And save them to ongoing immeasurable joy before them in who You are to them. For us who are in Christ, would You continue to give us the Spirit of revelation? Would You continue to cause the light of Your Spirit to shine ever brighter on the truth and the beauty and the glory of the Bible that we all have in our hands and in at the house. Oh, would you do it? Would you cause us to marvel and to overflow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is the keeping of your commandments, which are not burdensome, to the glory of Jesus, who is our sanctification, our justification, and ultimately our glorification. Amen and amen.